always good to be excited because the Word of God is always fresh, has something new for us every time. So we'll pray that we get something new out of this today as we see something old. <laughs> There's kind of a trick in that because that's part of one of the verses. There was a guy by the name of Fred DeMera. I don't know if anybody's heard of him, but you might have heard of the story. True story. Very intelligent person. And uh, he took on the identities of others. Uh, and really what that was, is he kind of shortcut through his life and placed himself in various positions or careers. Uh, amongst many of them, were uh, he was a Canadian Navy surgeon. Not that he studied for that. He was a civil engineer designing a bridge, a sheriff's deputy, an assistant prison warden, a doctor of applied psychology, a hospital orderly, a lawyer, a child care expert, a Benedictine monk, a Trappist monk, an editor, a cancer researcher, and a teacher, and at the end of his life, a hospital chaplain in his own name. You can say, how can one do all that? There's no way. You know, Julia's studying all this stuff to be one thing, right? I mean, that's you're gearing for that, and that's supposed to be a career or whatever, right? That we get into or whatever you study, and you don't, you're not able really to take on that many jobs because there's no way you would have enough time in your life to be able to do some of those professional things. Well, he didn't study on any of them. He didn't go to college, but he was able to get those jobs by faking his. Um, um, past jobs. And uh, evidently he did pretty good at them. But he claimed to be all these things and at one point in his life it was, it was preposterous that he could do what he did. And so they made a movie out of that called The Great Imposter back in the 60s. Some of you might remember that. And if you don't, you might be thinking of a movie that has been within your own time called Catch Me If You Can. Some of you might remember that one. That was similar to that. Uh, but there was a TV show called The Pretender. And he would be different things. Do you remember that show? So there have been stories of imposters. Uh, this one that I just told you about was true. And what we're getting at is in the church there can be many imposters looking like they're real, look like they're true Christians and they're really not. And they either deceive themselves or they know that they're deceiving uh, other people, but they're in it for other schemes, other reasons. Now, how do we tell if they are genuine Christians? And then you can say, well, hey, why should I even bother to try to tell if they are? Sometimes I even wonder if I am. What's my own standing in the Lord? Right? And so hopefully we can get some of those answers today as we look at this Scripture. Uh, our subject today is about the assurance of salvation. And you'll remember in the book of 1 John, that is really the main overarching purpose that they would know that they truly are children of God. I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants us to know. He doesn't want us to be here on earth just wondering all the time. I sinned there. I'm not so sure if the Lord can accept me now. I'll, I'll ask for forgiveness and see what happens. You know, Wouldn't that be terrible if that's the kind of life that we had? Uh, God always ready to pounce on you for some sin. And so John tells us it is possible. Peter even says to pursue those things and then make your election and your calling sure. Uh, many denominations, however, do not teach assurance of salvation. And I'm saying many. I'm talking mainline salvation or uh, uh, mainline churches, not just cults or on the fringe. I'm talking mainline that have been around for a long time, and I'll name them because they would not disagree with me. Methodist churches, Lutheran churches, Christian churches. When I say Christian church, uh, like a like a let's say a capital city Christian. Capital West, Churches of Christ, which are related to them, uh, Nazarene churches, I would probably say almost all, if not all, Pentecostal churches. There's always a works that you have to do in a Pentecostal to keep that. Uh, not to mention Catholic churches. None of those churches would ever teach assurance of salvation. They cannot. It's not in their doctrine. It's not in their creeds. Uh, that is, I think, not just a little error. I think it's major. I think it 
deflects off the very character, the very nature of God. I think it takes away from His Word. They're legitimately trying to be right because they see other Scripture that shows that one looks like they lose their salvation. But in those verses, it's talking about people who never were. They never had a conversion even though they looked like they did. They were imposters. And that is where we differ sometimes as I've talked with several people down through the years that believed in that. And I finally got them to the point, and I didn't get them to that, but I said, is it possible that at least some of those people really weren't true anyway just because they walked the aisle, just because there was excitement and 200 people got saved that night when 205 people were there in the crowd? (laughs) Just because they went to a concert and they called uh, people up there and they already had... 50 people to come down would make it look like people were getting saved and the rest of the crowd would come on down. Uh, Walk the aisle, sign a card, raise your hand, get baptized, say a prayer, you're saved, boom, you're assured, you're you're in salvation. Uh, Those are extremes, I know, but it actually happens. And it's kind of the norm. And so it's kind of sad, um, and it seems like I'm always speaking against other churches, and I don't want to do that. If the people in Christ are... They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. But this doctrine here, uh, in the book of 1 John, I mean all the way through there, the basis of assurance is there. You can't argue with that. And I'm going, what do they do with this book? Granted, it is good in 2 Corinthians 13.5 to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. It's a good thing to check ourselves out. Even if we know we're assured, at the same time, check ourselves. What have we been doing lately? Have we been walking in the Lord in, in, the, in the light that we should be? Yeah, we're in the light, but are, are we walking uh, in a way that would please Him? And then some people have to be at a point of, yeah, I have to check to see if I really am a Christian. I, I'm not sure. And you know what? If it came to that case, I'm not going to tell somebody unless I know I've seen their fruit and everything. Sometimes they really get down and they say, I don't even know if I'm a Christian anymore. And it's somebody you've known for 20 years. They've walked in the Lord. They've served the Lord. They have a hunger. They read His Word. And they're in a real funk. You know what I mean? And sometimes you've got to come alongside and uh, you know, uh, just pray with them or encourage them and say, hey, listen, and then start saying, hey, here's what you did for me and here's how you encouraged me. Look what you did for the church in this and look at this and look at this. Start looking at the fruit and uh, start telling them. But if somebody has really never shown some fruit or it's been really questionable, uh, sometimes to say, okay, well, that's between you and the Lord. You need to examine it, but let's look at these Scriptures here. Let's check this out. Let's see this. Uh, when somebody comes to the Lord right off the bat, first time, they weren't a Christian, all of a sudden they say they're a Christian. Well, I think it would be be good to say, hey, listen, okay, now you are in the right direction here. This is a good thing. If you if you have prayed and you really mean this, and He is Lord and He is Savior, and you desire to follow Him no matter what, then I think the Lord has called you, but that's still between you and the Lord. I can't always tell if somebody really is that way. And as time goes on, you can see it in their lives. They can see it. And First John says there are things that you want to look at to see if, if you're a Christian. Now the Reformers, uh, in Reformed theology, when it got back out of the Dark Ages uh, from uh, Roman Catholic theology, they discovered a lot of things. And one of them was assurance of salvation, and they preached that. They brought it to the forefront. If you're justified, then you are justified forever. Romans 8, 29 and 30 talks about from the point that He predestines us all the way to the point that He glorifies us. It's been done. They would preach that. They saw that important. Along came the Puritans in the 1600s. They preached assurance too. And you guys know how much I like the Puritans. I read them. I love to quote from them. They they were very godly people. Some people that we really need to... uh, to see what they wrote and, and follow their steps too. Uh, good thing that it's been revived in our times and books have come out. Now I say one negative thing against them because they are people. One thing that they might have done too much was they preached to people to examine themselves. It was so widespread that they constantly preached that so much that the parishioners, the congregation, lacked assurance And the preachers designed it that way so they would see their lack of assurance and bring them into almost utter despair. And that's not preaching grace to people who are Christians. So that's one mark that I can say that I I question the Puritans on. There are other things too. They are not gods. 
You know, they did some great things and they walked the walk. But uh, they always preached self-examination. And you can get to the point of an endless self-examination where it goes to an extreme. Yeah, yeah, I said I was a Christian there last year and I said it, all that, but now I look at myself, I don't think I'm a Christian now. You know, and, and because they keep examining themselves. And if you read in, in Puritan literature, much of it's written with people struggling whether they're saved or not. And their preachers have been preaching them into that condition even though they were preachers of grace. So um, that is why I say when you read Puritan literature, when you get into that, say, yes, I like that what they're doing, but I'm not going to take it to the extreme that they did. I think they, they went a little far. The Bible teaches eternal salvation. And we must bring those up to the top. It's of vital importance. If you look in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, we see something dealing with full assurance. And then we have to ask, well, what is full assurance? In Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let's draw near to God. Being fully assured. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying, just like John is saying. Then he says, how do you do this? How can you have full assurance? Hebrew writer, whoever that was, he says this, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, there he's not talking, hey, if you go in and take a bath, literally with water, then you're going to feel better about your assurance. He's talking about as you would be clean when you wash yourselves, so your spiritual man will be too because you have your heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. You realize that God forgives you. You you are confessing your sins. We looked at that uh, in the last week or so. Right? In 1 John. And so when you confess your sins, you have your uh, hearts cleansed from an evil conscience. So therefore, you have full assurance. So the answer is right in that verse right there. By having our hearts sprinkled. There's no assurance of salvation without sanctification. We have justification. We can say, well, here's what God did for me. But we need the sanctification. We need to say, okay, here's what um, God has done in my life. I'm sanctified. So a lack of holiness to a Christian can bring a lack of what? Assurance. If you've not been walking in a holy manner, then you can lose that assurance. And you notice what I said? Lose assurance. I didn't say lose salvation. David, after he sinned, he confessed a year later in Psalm 51, Restore, Lord, unto me the joy of my salvation. That joy. Uh, do not take the Holy Spirit from me. Right? If you're led by the Spirit, you can be assured. You are a Christian. If you're led by Him, in Romans 8 it says we have the Spirit of adoption. And we cry what? Abba, Father. Daddy, the most intimate term that we can have for our Father. Abba, Daddy. We have that spirit of adoption. That's how you can know you have assurance. So Paul says you can know if you're saved. You can know that you're saved. First of all, if the promises are there mentally. Here's what the Word of God says. Okay, here's what it says. You, I can know that I have salvation. I am His sheep. Here's what He has done, right? That's objective truth. That's objective truth that's in the Bible. Then we have the subjective truth, which is the Holy Spirit who resides in me, who is the reason why I can call Him Abba Father. The Holy Spirit is leading us. So we have the Word of God, the Spirit of God, who tells us we're Christians. And then number three, and that's where we're at today. 1 John chapter 2 starting at verse 3. Fifteen-minute introduction. Okay. I did better than an hour introduction. We're getting into the text. Okay. Now, by this, that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says... Remember that? He who says... Here's a claimer. I know Him... 
and does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His Word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says He abides in Him ought Himself also to walk just as He walked. First section. We have tests. Remember the tests? We have three tests in the book of 1 John and as everybody is reading 1 John every day, right? I challenge that, remember? And if you say, oh, I forgot about that, then that's okay, you're forgiven. <laughs> start, it, start it tomorrow. And um, actually, Kim has been doing that. She's been reading a different version every day. Version of the Bible. If you have, uh, I forget, Bible, uh, what is that, Kim? What's the name of that? BibleGateway. BibleGateway.com. If you have internet, go on to BibleGateway.com. Or I think you can go on our website. And I think that's BibleGateway on there too, isn't it? Right? Go on, go on our website and, and uh, then hit, hit on Bible Gateway to the left over there somewhere. That will take you to that. And you can see all the different translations. Say, okay, I want to see what this version says today. I, want to see this. I think that's a great idea. It really works. Um, so First John is really um, plowing it down here to different tests. One is, do we confess that Jesus is God? That He's Christ? That He's Lord? Right? What, do we say of, what does that person say about Christ? That's the first test. Now, we're not using that test today, but we're using two other tests. Another one is the moral test. And that means obedience. Do they obey God? Do I obey God? That's a good test check. And a third test, and these are all the ones interwoven through this book, uh, is uh, a test dealing about uh, the social test. How do I love others? Have I been loving others? Or do I go around saying, I hate people? I hate such and such. I hate her. I hate him. I hate this whole. I hate all people. I hate the world. Ooh, if we're saying that and we're meaning it, we are in real. T- don't even say it, because First John would put you right into the level of hell. <laughs> I'm not kidding. He'd call you a liar. He'd call you a deceiver, and he would put you and cast you into hell. That's what. <laughs> that's how black and white First John is. Um, so those tests are pretty. Um, Pretty decisive. And uh, believe me, that this, these are good tests to uh, put on ourselves. But uh, on others that, that say they're Christians, say, well, the guy doesn't even love people. He goes around saying he hates everybody. Uh, he doesn't obey God. doesn't even have a desire to obey God. matter of fact, he even says that uh, Jesus isn't necessarily... Um, wasn't born like the Incarnation says, he says in, in the Bible. Well, that person isn't a Christian. Yeah, but they say they're a Christian. Uh, you know, a lot of Christians lately now are getting into the sense of um, just siding along with everybody. Uh, for instance, if a Mormon is running for public office, like a Mitt Romney, all of a sudden, well, he's a Christian because he says he's a Christian. Or what's the guy on the uh, uh, Fox News? Glenn Beck. People are now, a lot of Christians now are saying, well, he's a Christian. He says he's a Christian. And he'll say some of the same things that we say. So he's therefore a Christian. We'll pray with him and, uh, pray and, and we're all in this together. Uh, Glenn Beck's a Mormon. Glenn Beck doesn't believe in the Christ that we believe in. And so therefore that test uh, fails him right there, right off the bat. That's the doctrinal test. You see how important those tests are? People are not discerning today in a church because they're not reading the Scripture doesn't mean anything. Well, we're getting into such a, um, how can you say, a political view. We have elections coming up and all of a sudden, hey, they believe the same kind of beliefs that uh, you know, the, uh, the conservative side does. Hey, I'm conservative. Yeah. I definitely wouldn't be a liberal. If I was a liberal in politics, then that means I would believe in uh, abortion for one, amongst many other things. Uh, I'll tell you what, I can't take that side. Sorry, there is no way. I can't identify with that. But a lot on the other side aren't necessarily Christians. But they'll side with anybody because they believe the same thing that they do politically. We still have a problem. We are on this earth and we as Christians as ambassadors are really strangers to this land even though we're, we have a citizenship here. Our true citizenship is in heaven and that's the kingdom that we are to preach. 
uh, if we can help in, in the voting of getting somebody godly there, that's great. We should believe that way, but that's not our main motive. Okay, well, this first test for assurance is because there are many who profess to be Christians, but they don't live a righteous life. And a righteous life may be a proof that one is a Christian. It's a very good test. That's how you can know. There are a lot of people who aren't Christians who actually live pretty good lives. At least outwardly. They look like it. They look good. They must be a Christian. But then, they're really not. We don't know what their inward part says. We, yeah, we do. It's, it's, uh, it hates God. That's good. Well, what can we say about this? Okay, John is writing in 90 AD, 80 AD, somewhere in that vicinity, let's say. And he says, okay, by this we know. By this we know. He's already talked about Christ being our propitiation for our sins. And then he says, okay, now we're, we're going to run some tests here. Here's, here's what we can know. We can know. And he's using that word know or knowledge, which he will use quite frequently in his writing, because that was a term that the Greek people used a lot. We know about gnosis, right? Gnosko. The Gnostics, or the pre-Gnostics, we know, we've been talking about the Gnostics, uh, which later this belief uh, went into pre-Gnosticism, um, really took on a great pride in having secret knowledge. And they were concerned about having salvation. And if they had secret knowledge that other people didn't have, well, they knew. They were in the know. That's why they were called Gnostics. Gnostics means to know. So that's what it was. They had great head knowledge. All the secrets and mysteries, things that weren't scriptural. But it didn't matter how their lifestyle was because as long as they knew things and the secret things of their God, they were okay. Lifestyle didn't matter. John says, hey, we know if we keep His commandments, we can know this. Uh, if you move it on up to the 18th century, you have the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was human reason, which is a good thing. God has given us a mind. It's the best gift we could ever have. We can think. We can reason. We can be rational beings. And that's one of the images that we have of God. But the only thing is, the human mind can't understand everything because the human mind has been tainted by sin. The human mind is not glorified. So therefore, it can think wrong things. And what happened during the Enlightenment? They believed, as long as you had human reasoning, you could arrive at God strictly through your human mind. So therefore, not all the Word of God really mattered in the Spirit of God. It was, if you could rationalize and and put yourself into whatever God is about. If you go back to the time of Plato, that was his idea. Men of great intellect, all down through the years, this great thinking, the long line of thinking through human history, and you could watch the History Channel, you can see all the great men of the world, and then most of those great men are uh, not of God. And they came up with some ideas. Ideas affect what the world is about. Ideas have consequences. So anyway, this drew the intellectual people to this, and it didn't necessarily stir the emotions. That was okay. It was all about the thinking. And we talk about the mind. Renew the mind, right? It's good to have a mind. But what happens if you throw out all the emotions? All you are is going to be some kind of a talking head. And you don't care about anybody. And you, you, know, you have, have the other extreme. But uh, anyway, uh, later on, there was a Greek philosophy that came and said, hey, listen, God can be known through the emotions. Not through the intellect but through the emotions, the emotional experience, the senses. And Jonathan Edwards saw how the senses came into play, a huge play. But we know Jonathan Edwards also used the mind. The mind and the senses, or emotions, get us into what truth is. 
anyway, um, the sensual kind of, or the, using the senses and the emotional experiences didn't do anything for the mind. So the philosophies that pervaded in the ancient world and the, all the way up to the modern world have a missing connection. They have a missing link. You have a chain, you have one link broken, now the chain is not connected. You have a major problem. And that's what the man has had all through his history. Philosophy has no attachment to morality. Never has. It doesn't now and never will. Human philosophy has no attachment to morality. The intellectuals, so it was a book, riveting book, maybe the most riveting book on history that one could ever read. It's a story that reaches a pinnacle of the philosophers of Western thought. That's our area, we're Western people. Great thinkers, right? The architects of the modern world that we live in today that shaped all this thinking. And the book reads kind of like a novel. Uh, reads like a sordid novel. It plunges into the depths of immorality, incest, homosexuality. It all pervades in these great familiar names. The great thinker of the modern intellectual world that we have today that's proceeded where we're at. People like Rousseau. People like Kant. People like Hegel. All those kind of philosophers. They made an impact on this world like you wouldn't believe. But yet their lives were decrepit, depraved, and some of the worst that you could think of when you think of the immorality, incest, and the homosexuality that was going on 200 years ago. We just thought it just started happening within the last decade. It's been around. So there's never been a connection of philosophy and life. True life. That's what was happening in John's day. You had the Gnostics or the Gnostics that would come Varying kinds of philosophies, different degrees, but none of them really connected to life. And so they could literally believe what they wanted to believe and live the way they wanted. Now, does that describe our modern society we live in today? Hey, listen, you believe what you want, you're on the right road, and you do what you want. Don't tell me how to live. Man, you can make them mad when you start saying, yeah, but the Bible says. <laughs> John. What's, what's another name for him or a nickname? A son of thunder. Boanerges. He was a brother of James. And you remember that they wanted to... Uh, take over and just destroy, literally destroy a, a town. These people. There was this tower and such. But He's a liar, John says. It's almost like he takes that same personality that has, one who now has love, and he says, they're liars. Truth is not in them. I mean, he just does not hold back the punch here. If anybody says this and they don't live this out, they're just liars. Thank you, John. That's true. He was inspired by God's Spirit to say that. The docetists. They like to believe that they had superior knowledge. John ran into those people. They didn't keep the commandments. They had no desire to keep the commandments. They said they were Christians. And what John called them? Liars. Okay, that is Greek knowledge. Let's now move on to the Christian knowledge. We know that Christians are to have knowledge. We're just not blind faith people, are we? Knowledge and righteousness. There is no knowledge of God without accompanying righteousness. There is no way that we can get to God and know who He is without His righteousness in us and our righteous acts. A true Christian not only knows God, knows His truth, knows His Word, but he will live those truths out. Not perfect. We've already talked about that. We're not talking John Wesley perfect entire sanctification because we know we still sin. We've already, we've already gone across that. But so when he says, 
uh, a true Christian obeys His commandments, that means that's the direction that He's in. He stumbles occasionally. He'll, he'll take a little fall, but He always gets back up because God will bring Him up. His actions will be consistent with His confession. You can see a Christian say, that guy's a Christian. You meet somebody for the first time, never seen him before, and within, within the first ten minutes, you can say, man, this guy is, is really a Christian. This lady is a Christian. You can just see by their whole demeanor, the way that they carry themselves, the way that they talk, what, what they're about. And you can say, that's a Christian. Right? So they're consistent. The things that they do and they talk. Um, uh, when you know Christ, you have a change of behavior. Let's go uh, all the way back to Jeremiah chapter 9. The great prophet Jeremiah has some good advice and a good word of God here for us. 9, 23, and 24. Thus says the Lord, and you'll, you'll recognize this, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. <laughs> We're seeing it in our way. <laughs> glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. Oh, we should have had that song today, right? <laughs> I didn't know I was going to go here till last night. But let him who glories glory in this. What? that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For these I delight, says the Lord. You know, did you know God just delights? Did you know that God takes pleasure? God is a God of joy. He's always joyful. You ever notice that? You can say, well, there's got to be a lot of times he's sad. He's always joyful. There has never been a time that God has lacked joy. You say, well, yeah, but what all the terrible things going on? Well, He doesn't take joy and pleasure in the sin, but He's a joyful God. He knows what's happening. He knows what's going on. He knows how all this is going to come to the conclusion. He has joy all the way through it and never misses a lick on it. He's a God of pleasure. And He wants us to be people of pleasure. And that's what we're going to be talking about on Monday night, Monday night Bible study. Uh, we're going to be inspired by Jonathan Edwards and, uh, his, and his pursuing of joy and trying to get a message that was not known by people of his time and it's really not known today that that is why we exist so we can have joy in God and in the things we do. But it all starts with Him. And so I qualify that. So, therefore, that's what we're going to be dealing with. Jonathan Edwards is the one who has revived that. And I'm thankful that he has kind of come back up to the top as far as some of his writings, at least to be known. Now, you can say Jonathan Edwards to people and they go, oh, yeah, I've heard of him. Jeremiah 31, since we're in Jeremiah, we're still on this first verse. 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put, look at this, right here, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You like that? Is that a promise? That's what God does. In this section of Jeremiah, God says He's going to put the law in their hearts. They will have a desire to be obedient. God is righteous, so His people will be righteous. We are righteous. You say, well, I don't feel so righteous. Yeah, but you are righteous if you're His. Right? Because you've been declared righteous before this great God. You know Him when you come into contact because He's a personality that changes your personality. He changes you. When you come in contact with Him, that's what happens. A righteous life is a proof that a supernatural God has come in and given you a supernatural life and now you have a supernatural assurance. Amen! Right? It's not natural for sinful men to be obedient to God because they're slaves to Satan and sin and death and hell. But it is natural for us to desire to be righteous. Now, okay. Now we've got to get back to another word. We've been dealing with no. 
K-N-O-W, right? Knowledge. Oh, we're still in verse 3. By this we know that Him, if we keep His commandments. Not if, is a big if, isn't it? So we're looking at the moral test, right? Dealing with obedience. We've looked at the, we're looking at the first test for assurance, right? We've looked at the first test for assurance. Now we'll look at um, uh, of this. But as, as, we, as we look in verse 3, the word keep is a key word. Don't just bypass that. It means to be observant, watchful. To be observing, uh, uh, an ongoing, watchful, observing obedience. It's ongoing, it's continual, it's habitual. Every moment, every day, guarding us. Every moment, every day. Step by step. Hey, I heard that in the prayer this morning that, that Bob said. That's what this is talking about. Ongoing. Process. Day by day, continual, habitual. You know. You may know that you have come to know Him if you obey Him. You have the desire to obey Him. You really say, I really want to obey Him. I feel guilty because I did this. But do you have the desire? Do you have that direction that you want to do that? Praise God. That's a pretty good thing that you might have passed this test. Commandments. Okay, what's commandments? Keep His commandments. Commandments. Well, it's not namas here, which is usually namas. Law, commandments, right? You're thinking of that. You're thinking Moses, thinking the law, the Ten Commandments, the rest of the commandments in the Old Testament. The word is intole. And that means precepts or order, uh, an assignment. Precepts. The precepts of Christ. It's a determination of Christ's word uh, or precepts, that they be guarded by your heart and actions. The precepts, you guard them. One gladly embraces the authority of Christ. If you say, this is the authority of the Word of God, I embrace this, I embrace Christ. He is my authority. Nothing else is. It's Him. Good indication. This is not a legalistic obedience that we have here. You're doing things just to be doing things and so it will make it look like you're a Christian. But it's an obedience from the heart. In Romans 6, they were slaves at one time. God converts them and now they obey from the heart. So they keep. They keep those commandments or interlay the precepts of Christ. Now we go into two types of professing Christians. Verse 4 and 5. And this looks familiar, doesn't it? Verse 4. He who says, here's the if we say here. He who says, I know Him. He who says. We've been looking at this if we say. Look in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin. Verse 9. If we confess our sins. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, that was that was actually an actual there. Verse ten. If we say we have not sinned, right? There's these if we sayers, and now we have he who says, or if we say I know him, right? This is an ongoing thing throughout here. You have the ones who make the claims, then you have other people who make the claims but back it up by their their walk. So John, the son of thunder, says the truth is not in the person who does not keep the commandments. He's a liar. And so John Owen said, there are none in the world that deal worse with God than people with a false assurance. They actually turn the grace of God into a licentiousness. That means they have license to sin. Oh, I'm a Christian and I can do whatever I want. I am free, brother, and I'm going to go and live it out. (laughs) Yeah. Show me that that guy's a Christian. I'm going to do whatever. I don't care what any other Christians think. I'm going to do this anyway. Because I like to do it. I can do it. I'm a Christian. I'm saved. They turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Let them profess what they will. John Owen later goes on to say, they're unsaved. They need to know that and those who are truly saved want to know that and to be assured. Those who are not don't want that confrontation. And he says their false assurance 
rushes to their rescue because it makes them feel so good. But their lifestyles do not line up. Where they hang out, who they hang out with, what they do, what they drink. Ephesians 2.2 calls them children of disobedience. So, these people who say, I'm a Christian, but I don't keep the commandments, uh, they're lying that they're Christians. And they're disobedient. Verse 5 says, but whoever keeps his word, now here's the opposite person, the one who keeps that, like he said in verse 3, one who keeps the word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this we know that we are in him. We keep his word. The evidence is in our lives, not our talk. That is not the evidence. It's good to have a great talk. Don't be talking bad, but have a good walk. Well, you can't. You can't. It can't happen. Uh, a gracious obedience under the New Testament means God accepts our obedience, even though our obedience sometimes can be filled with defects. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. That's why we sing about His grace. That's why we sing about His forgiveness. That's why we read all those passages and say them and confess them all the time. Good to know that. Well, how can God do that? He's a just God and He has us as Christians. Remember, all the defects that you have, even as Christians, were paid for by Christ at the cross. Even your Christian defects. God is not looking for a perfect legal obedience. And if that be the case, we are all headed to hell. (laughs) He's simply asking here, telling us that we do by His grace obey out of His love and we have gratitude for Him. Look in Psalm 116, verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits toward me? Because He has died and paid for your sins, because He paid for those defects, even in our obedience, that's, you know, even at your best, even when you are in your greatest moments in prayer on your knees, did you know there's still a taint of sin that's still involved there? Do you know when you're reading the Word of God and you're really wanting to know who He is and you're putting every effort towards it, did you know there's still a defect of sin that's involved there? You know? Our mind can start wandering no matter what. That's even, even at the best that we can do, we know that we are fallen people. We're still fallen people as far as the flesh is concerned, but we are capable to obey Him out of love and gratitude. Oh, the love of God. It's the person's love for God because of His love for us. If a person keeps the Word, they show that they love Him. They show that they're genuine. That they they really truly desire to do that. And by the way, um, but whoever keeps His Word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. It is matured in him. Truly. He uses the word truly. That means it's real. It's genuine. We're not kidding. This is a truth. This is genuine truth. The love of God is being perfected in you. You're maturing in Him. In verse 6, we kind of get the conclusion of this then, uh, of this part. He who says He abides in Him. Okay. You ought Himself also to walk just as He walked. Okay. If you abide in Him, then you're going to walk just like Christ walked. The word there, guess what? means to remain. To know Him. To stick around. To continue. Right? That's, uh, is that that hoople minor? The test is exemplified here. Abide. Know Him. To have fellowship with Him. All means the same thing. He is the very source of your life. If you're abiding in Him, if you're, you're there, I mean, you are the branch and you're in the tree. Uh, even though the wind is blown, it feels like the branch you know, is going to break off. You still say, well, I'm in the tree though. Walk as He walked. That's being like Christ. That's being like Christ. Walk as He walked. He's the source of your life. He's the power of your life. You know, Jesus obeyed the Father. 
He's God. Father's God. Why did he have to obey him? Because God is God. God is never disobedient in the triune God. They all love each other. They're in perfect unity. Never have offended each other ever. Perfect unity. We can't imagine that because we have never seen that exist. How do you know you're Christian then? Did you you believe the gospel? You understand you're a sinner. And from the heart, your deepest longings are to obey the precepts of Christ and to live the way that He lived, the way that He walked, and therein lies your assurance. The assurance of your salvation to those around you. We'll see that also. So we've just seen in one test here how that can really help you be assured because you desire that. That kind of summed up those three verses, didn't it? You believe the Gospel, you know you're a sinner, but you still want to obey Him, the very precepts of Christ, so you walk as He walks. Now, we go on to part two. We did the moral test, right? What's the moral test? Obedience. He who loves me obeys my commandments. Jesus said that in the Gospels, didn't He? Ah. Now we get into one that's very interesting. 7 through 11. This is the social test. This is the one of love. Verse 7. Brethren, write no new commandment to you. I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Okay, you have that. Verse 8. Look at this. Again, uh, a new commandment I write to you, which... Thing is true in Him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother, he is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. Right? That's the key here. Abiding in Christ. Loving. 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 That's the key. The social test. Earlier, the one who uh, obeys the commands is the one who knows God. Now he says the one who loves God and loves people, uh, you are being brought mature or to perfection as we go on through, day by day, uh, through Christ. That's the mark of a Christian. Uh, It's by love that Christians may know they're Christians. Well, Does one who professes to love God love others as well? That's where we get into verse 7 now. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you. No new commandment. Matter of fact, he starts brethren or beloved. I like beloved there. I think that is uh, the better word. John uses this a lot. He is the apostle of love. He once was known as a son of thunder. A son of thunder, and he's calling them brethren. He's calling them what? Brothers of love? Beloved? He wanted to call down fire from heaven. He wanted to incinerate the whole village of people because they didn't comply with what he thought was right. And so the son of thunder now is calling them brethren and uh, brothers in Christ. There's nothing new here as he says, I write no new commandment to you but an old commandment which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. This is dealing with the uh, the Old Testament. And so, um, there's nothing new here. Um, and in the next verse, he's going to say, I'm writing you a new commandment. He can say, what is going on here? Old, new, there's nothing new. So, what 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 do we have going? Right? Well, let's take a look. Um, he's saying, I'm not imposing upon you something new and confounded, and it's something that everybody's uh, never heard of. I'm going to put in something really fresh here that you won't even know. Well, he's, he's, not, he's not really saying that. This is not really new. Now, in philosophy, and back in the time of... Uh, John, here as he wrote 1 John chapter 2, they were going around saying that we had new knowledge. Right? Remember the philosophies that we talked about earlier. He says, I don't have anything new in that sense. It's always been here in Scripture. So loving others and loving God is always been around. Always. 
So it's not a new twist, he's saying. Not in that nature. I'm telling you something old. Something here you should be familiar with. We've had it from the beginning. It's the Word which you have heard. So he's talking about loving others. Moses mentioned this, and let's look in Leviticus 19.18. There we have, what? The old law, right? And we know that it doesn't disagree with what's going to be in the New Testament. But you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus 19.18. And Moses gave this as part of the law. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Ah! It's right there in the Old Testament. I didn't know that. Yeah. Moses said, love others. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as really yourself. Um, That's really what it's getting to. Love God. You know what the Ten Commandments are? Two tables. One table says, love God. Right? The first four commandments. Commandment five uh, five through ten then deals with the law that would be dealing with your neighbor. You don't steal from them. Right? Or you love your parents and that you obey them. Or you don't commit murder. Right? Uh, You don't lie. So, uh, when you have in the New Testament love God and love your neighbor, and then these two commands wrap up the whole Old Testament law. That means that's the royal law. It's been fulfilled. It's through the person of Christ. And because we are in Christ now, no longer do we want to break any of those commandments because He has written that law in our hearts. So John says here, okay, beloved, uh, I didn't invent this. This is not something I just came up with last night and I threw it in here, you know, and I'm telling you this. He says it's been around. Uh, Don't commit adultery. If you love your wife, would you want to commit adultery? If you really loved your wife, you would not ever do that, right? Uh, You're not going to commit adultery. Well, if you love other people, you would never murder anybody, right? Because you love them. You would not murder them. You would never steal against somebody you loved, right? If you really loved them, you wouldn't want to hurt them. So Paul says love is fulfilling of the whole law. There's an inseparable link between loving your neighbor and loving God. And so therefore, that's why he brings in this I'm not giving you anything new. I'm giving you an old covenant. Love sums it up. Okay, and you say, okay, yeah, but Dennis, I'm reading here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 8, that now it says a new commandment. Now, i got a problem with this, Dennis, because this really seems conflictive, Right? What are we going to do this? We have an old commandment, he says. He says, I'm not giving you anything new. And then he comes along and says, hey, I have a new commandment for you. Okay, what am I going to do with this? And we say, well, the Word of God has errors, right? No. <laughs> no way. The Word of God never has any errors. The problem is, is finite man who is sinful needs help from the Holy Spirit to be able to interpret what Scripture is saying. So when it says really hard and difficult things, we have to really start checking into this. He says, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in Him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He says, I'm not going to say anything new. Oh, by the way, here's a new commandment. John starts with love as an old commandment. I want you now to realize that you can love in a way that you never knew you could. I want you to love the way that Jesus loved. Go back to John 13. This is what Jesus said. John 13. The night before He was going to be crucified. And He he leaves on some great statements for them to remember. Jesus said the same thing. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. What? As I have loved you. 
as I have loved you. Not the way the Pharisees love. Not the way that you think love is, but you love now the way that Jesus loved. You say, well, wait a minute. That's asking a little too much. Jesus is God. He has perfect love. How can you expect me to do that? That you also love one another. You love the way that I love. Well, we have the new law or that old law. The new covenant written on our hearts. We now have the power through the Holy Spirit to love others in a way that we really didn't know before. Like the the apostles here. I'm sure at that time they didn't really understand what that meant. But let's look in Romans chapter 13 and here's the practicality of all the doctrine that he's written before and he gives us something that is very much in the aspect of wisdom. Romans 13, 9 and 10. For the commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness, you should not covet, and if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Old Testament. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's how come we can fulfill the law now because Christ has done it. Christ lives in us. We now have the capability to do that. By the way, when John here wrote this stunning statement here in 1 John 2, as we're studying that here this morning, we see that um, people can be stunned by it, but then on the other hand, having just said what he said, he says, I'm giving you a new commandment in that it's kainos. Uh, Greek word, kainos. It means, and we have new, and new and new, N-E-W, right? New whatever. But in the Greek, it can mean something a little bit different than just chronological. You have late, and then you have old, and then you have new. Well, this new here is the kainos, which is something that is fresh. Something that is not new in time, but it's new in quality. It's new in essence. It's new in its very character. So the love that we have is new in its very nature, in its very character. So he says, I'm giving you a new commandment. The same commandment that you've had now has new light on it. It's a new freshness to it. There's a newness to this because it's been fulfilled in Christ. You always wanted to love before. Now you can love in a much bigger way than you loved before. It has been made perfect in Christ. Jesus loved with a what kind of love? Perfect love. In Christ, we have a new age. Remember new age? New age religions? The new age has been here for 2,000 years. It's Christ. That's the real age. Great in quality. Great in essence. Great in character. It's new. His love was a selfless sacrifice. And this is the very heart of God. So there's the new. I write to you which thing is true in Him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Jesus is the true light. I am the light of the world, John wrote in John 8. It's a new, fresh love. And I want to tell you, catch this now, that old commandment, which is really the new commandment that's now been made fresh, is now manifest in each one of you. You have a fruit of the Spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace. First one is love. That is a fruit of a Christian. They have that for everybody who's ever been born because God created that person. And the next time you start thinking negative on a person or they've done something to you, don't try to get back at them. Just think. That person really irritates me. Yeah, it's probably true. But what should you do? Love them. Say, I can't do that. Oh, are you Christian? Yes, you can. We're talking about this new kind of love. You're thinking old. We have something more newer that you can do this. You don't have an excuse. 
to not love those people. You say, yeah, you know what they've done to me. Yeah, big deal. Love them. Can't. Yeah, you can. Because it's been made manifest in you. When you show that, it's an amazing thing. The manifestation of our love is something new. In Romans 5.5 5, it says the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. And now we can love like Christ did. Christ went to the poor people. Christ went to the beggars. He went to the blind. Christ went to the people that were dejected by the religious and the elite people. Christ went to the unlovely. He went to the people who hated Him even. Tax collectors, Pharisees. Some were converted, some not. But I want to tell you, that's the kind of love we now have put into us and you better practice that because you have no excuse before our God who has just given this to us. This is the royal law of love. If you're an ambassador for the king of all the universe, you are to manifest this unnatural love to the world and the supernatural love of Christ. Passing away? You say, this darkness is passing away. I don't see how this is passing away. Well, the conversions of the pagans, uh, they'd come from darkness. Come Christians. The natural darkness. We all were born into enmity. We were in the dark. We were passing away. This whole world. Do not love the world of things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. It's on its way out. And one day it's going to burn up. It's passing away. Right in our presence. passed away in us. It isn't completely passed yet, but when people are converted, show love towards one another like has happened to us, then we know it's passing away. It's just about done in our own lives. That old darkness. Okay, what about the life of love? 9 through 11. He who says he's in the light and hates his brother, look at this, is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light. There's no cause for stumbling in him. The one who claims... If we claim, we've already seen those. Gnostics claim to be enlightened, but they were in the darkness, right? They disdained the unenlightened people. They made fun of them. They hated them. They always talked about how stupid they were. They're God's creation. Hey, what about the one who loves? If you're in the light, you're not going to stumble all the time. You might stumble over something, but it's not going to be consistent with who you are. Galatians 5.22, through the, the Spirit. Paul said in Romans 13, he's saying if you love people, you're not going to stumble into sins against them. You're not going to violate people. If you love people, you don't sin against them. Right? Well, when we do, though, we feel terrible remorse. When we fail to love as we ought to love, We've just been a great hindrance to other people who are not Christians. People don't believe Christians because they don't see the love that's in them. They see us as hypocrites. Father, or, or you know, uh, Jesus was saying that um, you will know them by their love for each other. Right? What about the one who hates? So he's in darkness. They're not known. I mean, there are known because. Uh, they hate their brothers. They have disdain. Uh, they have indifference. Well, disdain is one thing, but indifference, uh, that's a form of hate too. Sometimes they seem to be opposites, but in fact they're not. My indifference to someone comes out in the end equal to my disdain. And whatever might be my attitude, if I have absolute indifference, or whether it's utter hostility... I'm actually not practicing love. It's virtually really to have no regard for their condition. I don't care about them. But if we start thinking they are a creation of God, hmm, I have to have a different attitude here. So I have to put on Christ here. The religious, the wise, the philosophers, they claim to be in the light. 
don't they? Our political leaders, they have the light, they have the truth, they have the best offering that we can have. We can turn this whole thing around. But their whole life, their lives really are full of crashes. It comes out in the news all the time, some kind of sexual thing that they've been into. The other political party finds out and they see how bad they are and they keep getting back at each other. And they all are doing this. Almost all of them, except for a few. They're all having their sexual uh, runs and such. They're blindly stumbling into damning sin. Proof of their condition is that they don't really love. They, they move, as Jude puts it, uh, blackness of darkness, which is eternal judgment. And they're blinded, as uh, John says here. In John 12.35, Jesus said something about this blindness. I'm, I'm right at the end here. I'm sorry. Boy, the time has shot. Sorry, too quick. Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. They're known because they hate their brothers. He has a dark walk. No goal. Don't know where they're going. No clear goal. Uh, Where's that? So we ask each other, Do we take offense at the smallest things? Do we maintain a religiously long memory of wrongs held against us? Or held against others? Do we have an unforgiving spirit? Are we just paralyzed with spite and resentment? John says you need to look into your heart and question whether you're following the love of God that's been put into you. The sign that we have light, we have we have love. Are you desiring? Are you longing to obey the word of God? Do you love others? Those are the two tests. That's how we know if we're a Christian. And by that love, not only do we know, but by that, by that love, people who see you know that. What a great statement! By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the heart and soul of our Christian testimony. That's the very foundation on which the Gospel becomes believable to the lost. Let's pray.